1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 John.
0: Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for with every sunrise.
2: There exists, from the moment you get saved, a battle, which was not there before you got saved. Before you get saved, when you don't have a regenerated heart that loves Jesus, you just did whatever your unregenerated life wanted to do, and so therefore there's no conflict. And so people lived however they want to live. You understand this, because before you came to know Christ, if you, especially if you came to know Christ a little bit later in life, there's a lot of stuff you did before you came to know Christ that you just did because it's what everybody else did. You're just gratifying your own flesh, and, it, and it's no conflict, okay?
1: Oftentimes, we get tricked into thinking that Christianity will somehow solve all of our worldly problems, but that's not biblical whatsoever. In fact, we're not only expected, but promised to have more difficulty in our lives after coming to Christ. In today's message, though, Pastor Gary explains that we're encouraged to keep the faith anyway, not because it solves all of our problems here on earth but because God's promise of eternal life afterwards, making worldly problems obsolete. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: 1 John, chapter 1, is where we start, obviously, as we begin a new book study together. Now, sometimes when we start a new book, and this is going to be the case with 1 John, even though this is a tiny book, it's only five chapters, and then, it, and then it gets even tinier with 2 John and 3 John and Jude, they're only a chapter each, is taking time to give an introduction. And it just so happens that this particular book it needs a little bit lengthier of an introduction, even though it's a tiny book, because of what is happening in the first century when John writes this. So I'm going to give an introduction, and then we'll see if we can get through chapter 1. But for you note-takers, this is a book that bears the name of John in the title. And so it was written by him around 85 to 90 AD. John's pretty old when he's, when he's writing this. He was the youngest of Jesus' apostles. He may have been anywhere between late teens and early 20s. When he was a personal follower of Jesus, making him around eighty years of age at this particular time that he writes this book, so he 's going to be the last of the surviving apostles and um, and in his old age he he pens um, some of these final uh, epistles here. Now, the name of John only appears in the title of this letter. nowhere does John identify himself. And yet there is evidence that he is the writer. So you have some liberal theologians who will say, we don't really know who wrote the the letter of 1 John. And so even though this book does not bear his name, he doesn't, you know, like a lot of Paul's epistles, he begins or ends by referring to his own name. John doesn't refer to himself in this this letter. Uh, That's probably because when you were the last surviving elder, you don't need to Identify yourself. Everybody knows at this point. But nevertheless, I'm going to give you the historical reasons why uh, we can be confident that this is uh, attributed to John as the author. Style, substance, and sources. Those three words. First, style. Uh, at least 10 identical phrases that appear in First John also appear in the Gospel of John. So there is a style similarity here between 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the Gospel of John. And we do know that the Gospel of John was written by John. And so the similarities of style certainly indicate that he is the author. When it comes to substance, we find out in the first verse of chapter 1 here, when we when read it a little bit, that, that John refers to himself as the eyewitness, That he was there to see these things, he was there to behold these things, to to touch and and to be a part of this as a personal eyewitness. And since he, again, was the oldest of the surviving apostles, uh, this puts him as um, that eyewitness. So substance tells us that it's John. And then finally, sources. Uh, The early church fathers all agreed, Irenaeus, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, all the early church fathers attributed this letter to the apostle John. Uh, one of the things that I love about this letter, so, so that's settled as, as far as I'm concerned, although, you know, his name's not mentioned. One of the things that I love about the uh, epistle of John, the first epistle here, First John, is that he is one of these guys who, for thick-headed people like me, explains himself very, very clearly. Reading comprehension was not my best subject in school. I I have to read things and reread and reread because what happens is my mind drifts and I can read a whole page of something all the while thinking about entirely different things and realize I didn't understand a thing I just read. So one of the things I love about John is for people like me, he spells out four purposes for writing his letter four purposes why did he write this letter and he's going to tell us the first is to make our joy full or complete and i'm just going to take you through these verses so you see just how plain this is so chapter one in verse four where he says and these things we write to you that your joy may be full doesn't he spell that out for us He says, here's one of the reasons I'm writing this epistle to you. I want in your relationship with Christ, I want your joy to be full. I want it to be complete. The second reason, another reason he says he writes this is to warn us about habitual sin. Look at chapter two, verse one, where he says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And so again, he spells it out for us. Now, we're going to see in a moment that this does not mean that Christians don't sin at all, but again, I use the word habitual sin because he's talking here about as believers, belie- it's not that believers are sinless, it's that as believers, the older we get in Christ, we should sin less. All right, everybody understand that? little we'll play on words. And so one of the things here that is problematic in the life of a believer is when we still live like we used to live before we became a believer. And so that's inconsistent. So he writes, another point of his writing is, be careful of, of habitual sin. That is not a characteristic of a follower of Christ. Number three, he tells us also plainly in this letter, I, I, I'm writing to refute false teachers. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. Chapter two, twenty-six. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So again, it's just very plain talk. These things, another reason that I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So he he writes to refute false teachers. And then finally, uh, number four, he writes to assure us of our salvation. Chapter five, last chapter, verse 13. Again, he just spells it out very plainly to us. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. So it's, it's intended to be a letter of encouragement. Now I will tell you that when you read first, I remember the first time I read it as a young believer, as a teenager. And I thought to myself, when I got through reading first John, I ain't even saved. Because the way he writes about, if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, you can't claim to have fellowship with the Lord. And I and I was doing this, and I was doing this, and I was doing this, and I was doing this. So I was like, I I don't think I'm even saved. He actually writes to assure us of our salvation, so that by the time we finish the letter, we will be more secure and confident in our walk with the Lord. But it is a challenging letter, in that it is going to confront us. It confronts us with sloppy Christian living, and it's going to challenge us, these are the kind of things that you should do as a believer and should not do as a believer. And um, one of the things that stands opposed to Christianity in this particular time that is important for us to understand the background of this story, which is why I'm spending a little bit more time with this introduction, is, is Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a a heresy that took root starting in its infancy in the 1st century A.D., which is when uh, John is writing here, just at the end of the 1st century, 85 to 90 A.D., Uh, and it it really becomes a stronghold in the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. So, I mean, for a couple hundred years or so, Gnosticism was a heresy that infected and affected the early church. So what is Gnosticism? I'm, I'm going to explain what Gnosticism is, and then I'll, on the screen I'll just give you a summary. But first let me just basically explain what it is. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosko, which means knowledge. One of the things that this heresy that crept into the early church that, that some of the early Christians thought or believed was that knowledge was the way to salvation. It's about what you know and not necessarily who you know. So if we can accumulate knowledge about these things, then that's the key to salvation. But the other important thing about Gnosticism that was really the the evil behind it was this thinking that things physical, okay, as it relates to physical body and tangible material things, that's really what is evil. So the physical is evil, the spiritual is what is good, And for that reason, the early Gnostics believed that Jesus was not really physical, because they thought everything physical was fleshly and thus evil, and so they dismissed the physical incarnation of Jesus, God coming in flesh, and they believed that Jesus was just a phantom spirit, that he was walking around, he wasn't real flesh. He was just phantom spirit, which which is completely contrary to scripture because, you know, he became flesh and dwelt among us is what, you know, John writes in his first gospel. So, you know, we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so he does take on flesh. He does take on skin, so to speak. He wraps himself in humanity. Humanity, it's flesh itself is, is not sinful. It's how we operate in the flesh that is sinful. So the fact that Jesus had a physical body did not make him sinful because he, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin is what scripture says. So it's not that the physical or the tangible or the material is sinful in and of itself, but the early Gnostics thought that. So here's where they went and they're thinking with that. If therefore, everything physical doesn't matter, that it's only about what is spiritual, then you can really, this is what they taught, you can really do whatever you want physically because that's not what counts. It's only about the spirit. You see how twisted this gets? Which led then to this sloppy living in the early church where people who bought into Gnosticism then began to believe, well, if it doesn't really matter what I do, then my behavior really is not an indication of my Christianity or the lack thereof, so I can do whatever I jolly well want to do. And they were engaging in all kinds of sin and all kinds of practices because they were using the physical to gratify the desires of the sinful nature and to live lives like they weren't saved. And so John now, as Gnosticism starts to take root at the end of the first century, it's just it's just in its infancy. But John is addressing this in this first uh, epistle here, First John, because it's going to take root in the second and third centuries, and it's going to wreck a lot of people in the early church in terms of their faith. Because they don't have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. If you deny that that God came in flesh, you're denying the incarnation. You're denying the whole, you know, uh, virgin birth. You're denying God in flesh, okay? So so you're denying the authenticity and deity of Christ who takes on flesh and dwells among us and dies for our sins. And on top of that, you're compounding that false doctrine. If if you don't believe that Jesus is, you know, come in flesh, then you're, you're living in false doctrine. But you're compounding that by saying, well, the flesh doesn't even really matter because once we get saved, it's all about the spirit so you can do whatever you want with your body. That's what's happening here. Okay, so that's that's the main backdrop. Now, just to kind of summarize all that I just said there into a few couple of sentences here, Gnosticism was basically a heresy of the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD that started in the 1st century AD, which taught that, one, all physical matter is evil, Therefore, Jesus did not have a physical body. He was a phantom spirit. And number two, since only the spirit matters, anything you do physically doesn't matter. So that's what Gnosticism teaches. That's what a lot we're buying into. And John is spending his time primarily as he writes 1 John to, with that backdrop in mind, addressing some of the problems that were prevalent in the church. But here's the thing: you know, even though Gnosticism is not an issue today, per se we can still get into that kind of sloppy living where, where we just start to think, you know what, it's all about, you know, your spirit and going to heaven when you die and we're going to shed this body of flesh anyway, so does it really matter what we do with our bodies? It's not really about the body, you know, from, from dust we were created to dust we shall return. And then a lot of people just get um, really lazy in, in their spiritual disciplines and living for Christ and not gratifying the desires of the sinful nature, and dying to self. You know, that's a whole part of the Bible that relates to us as Christians, about dying to self, taking up your cross daily, you know, crucifying the flesh. There exists, from the moment you get saved, a battle, which was not there before you got saved. Before you get saved, when you don't have a regenerated heart that loves Jesus, you just did whatever your unregenerated life wanted to do. And so therefore there's no conflict. And so people lived however they want to live. You understand this because before you came to know Christ, if you, especially if you came to know Christ a little bit later in life, there's a lot of stuff you did before you came to know Christ that you just did because it's what everybody else did. You're just gratifying your own flesh, and, it, and it's no conflict, okay? Then you get saved. Now your moral conscience is awakened because of your love for Jesus and, and, and him living within you. And all of a sudden now you're conflicted and some of your friends want want you to go where you used to go and you're like, "Ah, I'm not sure if I should go there anymore." And 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 you know, you're thinking about doing some of the things you used to do, and you're like, "Ah, I'm not I don't think I should do that anymore." Because now this conscience factor kicks in. Because now you actually have a, this moral awareness and you have this heightened understanding of wanting to please God. And when you want to please God, you realize there's a lot of stuff that your flesh wants to do that is not pleasing to God. And so, this is this is the challenge for us as Christians. You know, Christians can go around, anybody can go around saying, this is what I believe. But your belief needs to match your behavior. And if it doesn't, you're a hypocrite. That's what it comes down to. It's not sincere. It's not a sincere faith. You know, sincere comes from two Latin words, "sini" cara. Sine meaning without and cara meaning wax). In the first century, when Romans, you know, would, would make these beautiful statues and chisel them out of granite and stuff, once in a while, the, the chisel in the hand of a chiseler would slip and they would be making this beautiful statue out of granite and all of a sudden point off goes the nose. And I'm like, ah, you know, I just, I just made this beautiful statue of Aphrodite and, and now she's missing a nose. What am I going to do? And here's what they would do. They would soften wax. And they would take the wax, and then they would do a little plastic surgery on Aphrodite. And they'd give her a nice, beautiful nose. And and then they'd sell it like that. And you'd come along on the market, and you'd buy a little, if you you weren't a Christian, obviously, you'd buy a statue of Aphrodite. And you'd put her in the the front window of your house. And you'd think, this is beautiful. I paid a lot of money for this. Everybody who walks by is going to see my beautiful statue of Aphrodite. And then the hot summer heat comes through the window. And all of a sudden, Aphrodite, you know, she's not as Aphrodite as, she, as you thought she was. Because now her nose is melted all down her face. And you're like, what's this? Oh, somebody made it with wax. So sinicera is when it's legit. No wax. Okay? And this is what God calls us to be as Christians. No wax. No, nothing fake. That we have to be sincere and authentic in our relationship with him. And this is challenging stuff. Because every single one of us, truth be told, our flesh wants to dominate. Our flesh wants to rule. And and it's going to be a constant battle until the day we die and shed this body of flesh. So that then we can fully be with a glorified body and our spirit combined with our glorified body in the presence of the Lord. No more temptation, no more battle from within because we are an undivided soul with a regenerated body in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. How many people are looking forward to that day? Amen? 1 John 1, verse 1. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So that's his introduction here. First couple of verses and in verse one, back up where he says that, which was from the beginning, he's actually, you know, what beginning is he talking about? Well, he's he's talking about two things. He's talking about Genesis one, one in the beginning, God. Okay. You don't have to go any further than that. In the beginning, God. And he's also referring to his own gospel, John 1, one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so between Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.1, 1, 1, he's talking about the beginning. He's talking about as it relates to God, which, which we have heard. Now he's talking about being that personal eyewitness. I've heard, we've heard this. We've seen it with our eyes. We have looked upon and our hands have handled, okay? He said, I, I've been there, I've seen it, I've, I've heard Jesus, I, I have seen him, I have touched him, I've looked upon him, our hands have handled concerning the word of life, circle the word life, and, and then in verse 2, the life, the life was manifested. So there's going to be a few things that uh, John says God is. In, in 1 John. And here they are. I'm going I'm to give you all three right, right at the beginning, even though the last one doesn't come till chapter four. And it's probably the most quoted one, is the best known one. But the first one that, that John writes about here that God is, is God is life. God is life. He, he, he says there uh, concerning the word of life, I'm a, I can testify concerning the word of life. Verse two that life was manifested. And, and the word life is used 14 times in this little epistle of only five chapters. He's going he's to put a heavy emphasis on life. Now, there are a couple of Greek words that, and in, in the New Testament was written originally in Greek, that translate life. You have bios. We, we know that one, right? Biology, the study of life. That's physical life, natural life. You have suke, which is really the study of the soul, but it's sometimes translated in the Bible as life. And then you have the Greek word zoe. Z O E. And Zoe makes a a pretty girl's name too. But Zoe in the Greek means life that is eternal, the fullness of life. The fullness of life. And and Zoe, really, that kind of life we can only have through a personal relationship with the one who is life, that is the Lord. And so this is the kind of life that he's talking about here. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Zoe. No man comes to the Father except through me. So even by Jesus' own testimony, if you really want to have the fullness of life, if you think to yourself, you know, I don't really feel like, you know, I I feel like something's lacking in my life. That might be because you don't know Christ, because He is the fullness of life. And once you know Him, you know fullness of life like you've never known before. Jump
1: in and you'll find the corner your new life. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 John, a deep book with a simple truth front and center. We find this truth in 1 John 3:11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Did you know there's a way you can love your fellow listeners? We hope you learned something new as you listen today, and even more, that you were inspired to continue searching the Bible for God's love, truth, and grace. Would you join us in praying for your fellow listeners? With every message, there's potential for someone who desperately needs hope to hear about Jesus, and prayer is an incredible way to support them, even though you may never meet them. Or maybe today, it's you who needs prayer. We'd love to hear from you. Please send requests to prayer at ccvb.net. That's prayer at ccvb.net. Are you looking to go deeper into this study? Head over to our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, where you'll find companion resources that are available to you completely free. Once again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's message. There's more to learn. So we hope you'll join us here next time for more from Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say you're a wandering soul That you got no place to go But still you know still you know. You're not a